This episode contains sexually explicit language that might not be suitable for kids. So fair warning, dear Coven members, we're going to get a bit R-rated. When I was stepping into the role of Suzanne, that was the weight I had to take on. She's never really had a chance to be who she wants to be or feel the way she wants to feel. She has a job, and this job is the most important thing to her. And honestly, she doesn't have any other choice. It's like out of necessity and out of survival. This is the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast, and I'm your host, Amy Nicholson, writer, critic, podcast host, and witch in training. Each week, our coven unpacks the latest episode of AMC's enchanting adaptation of Mayfair Witches. And I cannot contain my excitement for this week's episode because we are talking all about episode six, titled Transference, with not one, but two witches. We are joined by Hannah Aline, who plays Suzanne Mayfair, all the way back in ye old Scotland. And we are also welcoming Dylan Bauer, the famed magic consultant who we have heard so much about all season long. But beware, me and my new witch friends, we're going to be talking about everything up until episode six. So if you have not yet watched this episode, turn back now. This space is for Coven members only. I can't fathom for the life of me why you think we should capitulate to this. We can't exactly force her to behave like a designee. Have you tried? In episode six, Rowan tries to run from her destiny. After last week's haunted house romp, Rowan wants out of this Mayfair family. So she does the only thing she can think to do. She goes to Uncle Cortland and demands a transference spell to magically give Lasher to another Mayfair woman by using this doll made out of Mayfair women. It is literally sewn together from actual witch bones and hair. And surprisingly, there are a lot of takers. It seems like just about every other Mayfair would be thrilled to have Lasher. So Rowan's like, take him, honey. Honestly, why did anybody tell her about this earlier? It is a win-win. The number one contender for Lasher's new host slash stalking victim slash girlfriend, it's Tessa, one of Rowan's younger cousins who is very eager for powers. During the transference ceremony, Lasher does bind to Tessa, but he's hurt that Rowan thinks she can get rid of him. He's part of her, he says. Meanwhile, Cyprian uncovers the origin of Lasher by visiting a dream world memoryscape of ancient Scotland. It is Suzanne Mayfair's fault. Yes, the healer who excels in curing skivering injuries. She summons Lasher, who decimates the village in exchange for a promise that the Mayfair women will fulfill an ancient prophecy for Lasher. I don't know who needs to hear this. Actually, I do. It is Suzanne. Uh, Ancient prophecies are never a good thing. And you know what else is not a good thing? Being tragically online, like our new designee Tessa. She's spending way too much time lurking on internet message boards with alt-right witch hunters. And at the end of the episode, they kidnap Tessa. Oh god, this is not going to end well. It is time to get into all of these prophecies and spells and online misdemeanors with my guests, Hannah Aline and Dylan Bauer. There is no time to waste. Well, hello, strangers to our coven. Why don't you introduce yourself and say who you are and what you do on the show? Hello. I'm Hannah Aline, and I play Suzanne, the first of the Mayfair Witches. I'm Dylan Bauer, and I'm the witchcraft consultant for the Mayfair Witches. Well, today is such a special day. Dylan, we have been hearing about you so much in our interviews throughout this season. I'm so glad you're here. But I have to ask right up at the top, 
how does somebody become a witch consultant? Like when you were little, <laughs> other kids were like, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. Were you like, no, I want to be a witch consultant? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did tell my guidance counselor, I said I want to be a witch. And they laughed. And I'm a professional witch. So who's laughing now, guidance counselor? <laughs> <laughs> well, then, Dylan, can you tell me what exactly you do as a witch consultant? Absolutely. So um, really what I do is I look at my practice. I look at the practices in history. And really, I adapt the vision of the writers and show it through the lens of a witch and what a witchcraft practitioner would do. You know, in one scene, they have to carve a sigil on a door. What sigil would that be? If there is a deity that is invoked or like the Latin scriptures, it would say, okay, so they are going to summon Lasher in Latin. What is the spell that they would speak? That's so cool. Really what I'm doing is I'm looking at the practices of old. I'm looking at pagan practices. I'm seeing what would a witch in... 1600 Scotland, what would they have access to and what would they utilize to do whatever magical incantation they want to achieve? Wow. This is why I'm so excited to talk to you and Hannah together because it feels like you were almost symbiotic partners in creating these Suzanne scenes. I actually want to hear for you, Hannah, about this cabin. I mean, when I look at it on screen, it feels loaded with little bits of meaning. You know, there's herbs all over the walls. There's things in the shadows that I can't make it as a viewer, but that you could see. Yeah, it's a stunning set. Yeah. When I first walked onto set, I was like, wow, this whole thing for this character, it's just set decked out like I've never seen before. It's <laughs> it's great. Did it have a vibe when you walked in? 100%. I mean, there's smoke, there's lit fires. It feels honestly kind of magical in a way that's exciting to experience, especially in that particular place. I mean, yeah, you feel so convincingly from that time period. And I want to talk a little bit more about the things that help create this character from the outside. Like your costume is so mm -hmm. good. Oh, it's amazing. What is that costume? How many layers are you wearing? What's going on? I think I'm wearing probably four layers, four or five. There's there was always some sort of corset action going on in a, a very large cape that I tripped over most of the time. <laughs> that cape is fire. It was so bomb. <laughs> it's pretty epic. Janie Bryant, the costume designer and the hair and makeup department, they're just they're incredible. But I feel like, Hannah, even looking at you right now without the Mayfair makeup on, you sort of have a medieval face, if that makes sense. <laughs> have you heard that before? Um, <laughs> I don't know that I've been told I have a medieval face, but I think with no makeup on and looking all natural, yeah, I do think that I have like an, a renaissance face in a way that like an older face. I don't necessarily feel like I have a modern face. I get that. One time I looked at like an old Dutch painting and it looked like a portrait of me and I was like, oh. <gasps> And it was the first time I think I'd seen a work of art that I was like, oh, no, that's just my face. I'm related to whoever that person is. I've had people legitimately send me photos of portraits from museums and go, is this you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, um, no, it's not me. I'm alive now. You're going to get cast in all those period dramas. I mean, are you pro corset in general? That could be fun. The amount of corsets I've worn, it's shocking. <laughs> Well, this episode is really where Suzanne's story reaches ahead. Witch hunters are out to get her. Let's take a listen to this scene. Are you the med witch, Suzanne? Aye. Is one of your hairs? Come with us. Now. I've done no wrong. That's not for you to say. No. But for men of God. No. 
This scene is so frustrating to watch because Suzanne has been there helping all of these women, healing people, and she just gets persecuted for it. She really gets the short end of the stick, and that's Suzanne's cross to bear, essentially. She's helping, she's serving, she's caring for these townspeople, and they turn against her. I mean, Dylan, given that you're also a witch historian, what can you tell us about this actual real moment of persecution of women in Scotland in the 17th century? Yeah, well, one, it's very much legit. You know, everyone puts a lot of emphasis on the Salem witch trials, but it was 22 people who were killed, but thousands upon thousands were executed in Scotland and throughout the UK and Europe. Oh, wow. And for the majority, it was women and it was midwives. And it was due to King James. He actually made a decree that you could not use herbs or medicine to ease birth. So if you were a midwife and you were utilizing herbs and and you were taking white willow bark and using it as aspirin to heal pain, you were essentially a witch and you were going against God. The only person that should be helping you is the priest and God. Anything outside of that was sorcery and the devil's work. I mean, okay, the government getting involved, the church getting involved, and these men saying that women don't have control over how they give birth. What a crazy faraway time period. I can't imagine living in something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not reminiscent of anything happening today. Not at all. Although it does feel like the Scotland plot is getting mirrored in present day New Orleans, where we see in this episode that there's this growing threat of all of these like alt-right modern day witch hunters. I mean, are witches just inherently political? You know what? I've always said there are a lot of self-proclaimed practitioners who say that they don't want to get involved in politics, but witchcraft is political. It's about reclaiming your rights. You know, I mean, Haiti revolted against the French. That came from a voodoo ritual. There's a lot of magic and practice that is utilized during warfare or political riots. And, And I do think that if you look at ancient paganism, and you look at the practices of witchcraft and the spells historically, it's all about power. That's fascinating. One thing I love, Hannah, about your performance is that you can feel this innate power that exists within Suzanne. What research did you do to bring this character to life? Had you already read the original Anne Rice novels before signing on? I wasn't necessarily familiar with The Witching Hour in particular, so I knew I didn't have a lot of time, and so that's that's where I went first. And there's this whole really strong section about the history and the lineage of the Mayfairs and of Suzanne in particular and of her daughter, Deborah. And, you know, for me, it is generational, and that's what's so special. Is like I've had this obsession with generational stories and novels like East of Eden and, and Middlesex and these stories that have really captivated me. So learning about these women and their ties to each other, it was really special in a way to get to bring this character to life. Who is she? How do I accomplish this accent? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How did you get that accent right? Oh, gosh. I could already do a pretty convincing Irish accent. And um, I faked it for the audition, to be honest. I, (laughs) I learned it line by line. And then after I knew that I had the part, I was like, well, I have Two weeks. I've, I've really got to figure oh, this out. wow. So I just worked on it all the time. And I'm pretty sure I was annoying to everyone around me. I kind of want you to say something very modern that Suzanne wouldn't understand at all, but in her accent. Like, <laughs> I want to hear your Starbucks order, but in 
Suzanne's accent. Oh my God, please. Uh, could I get an almond milk latte with uh, a shot of espresso? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds terrible. It sounds like a potion. Thank you. It also sounds delicious, to be honest. It does. <laughs> but I was also curious about Suzanne's life before we meet her in the show. We're watching her life getting worse and worse, but her life doesn't seem to start out in the greatest position in the first place. I mean, do you think she ever had a chance to feel content with her life, even before the witch word starts getting thrown around her every day? I wonder if anyone in the 17th century had a chance to be content with her life. (laughs) Yeah. I think that women in, in that time and in general, you know, they were made to be the homemakers. They were made to be, like Suzanne, the midwife or the person carrying for others. And I don't think they particularly had a chance to even think about what that would be or what that would feel like. And I think when I was stepping into the role of Suzanne, that was the weight I had to take on was that she's never really had a chance to be who she wants to be or feel the way she wants to feel. She has a job and this this job is the most important thing to her. And honestly, she doesn't have any other choice. It's like out of necessity and out of survival. Right. And I think what's so interesting is that everything Suzanne is doing is to help other women survive. She nurses people back to health every day. Mm -hmm. And then this episode really becomes all about the power of her body, of a witch's body, of the artifacts of a woman who's a witch, even after she's dead. In this episode, we talk about her heart, where her hair, there's sort of an assemblage of doll parts that get made. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, this is something that witchcraft seems to have in common with Christianity, where there's like, you can get blessings from little bits of dead saints. I mean, Dylan, why is witchcraft so steeped in this power of symbols and objects? It has to do with the importance of ancestry. It's so funny because when people are like, oh, Catholicism and witchcraft, it's actually two sides of the same coin. Um, When I lived in New Orleans, there used to be a joke, and it was Catholic in the front, voodoo in the back, you know? (laughs) Wait, I want that on a T-shirt. I need it on a T-shirt, too. But if you go to the Vatican now, um, they have dead saints or the parts of dead saints. They call that a reliquary. And what's interesting is that you really find these artifacts in Every culture, you really do. Every culture has a talisman. Every culture has uh, this sense of you're going to honor your ancestors. And sometimes you do that by keeping their hair. (laughs) What do they call these witchcraft (laughs) symbols? I feel like I've heard the word taglock before, but I am not sure what it means. Yeah. A taglock is the magical essence of a person. So when you watch those movies and they're collecting the toenails or, you know, so-and-so wants a boo and they steal a piece of their hair, that is a tag. That is taking the vital essence or DNA of the person so that you could utilize their energy and magic. So I really applaud Mayfair Witches for really incorporating that history of of magic. Can I also applaud that you, a witch, are bringing back the word boo for a a boyfriend or girlfriend? Because I think only a witch is allowed to do that. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, let's revive the word boo. So-and-so wants a boo. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But let's listen to a clip from the show that talks about one of these witch artifacts in particular, Deirdre's heart. Here's a conversation between Rowan's cousin, Tessa, and Rowan about how this heart has been stolen. How are you so calm about this? That's your mother's heart. Well, I've seen a lot of hearts. Who's Night Night 88? He's just this asshole who's been DMing me, and now he has Deirdre's heart. 
He, he's actually right. He has a witch's heart. We have to do something. This is our family, your family. Tessa, look, I admire your instinct and conviction towards justice, but I'm not a vigilante. I don't, I don't want to get involved. You got involved with Carlotta. That was different. I was in danger. A heart is not a person. It's a muscle. It's nothing worth risking your safety over at all, under any circumstances. The heart of the designee is sacred to him. Okay, we need to settle this. Is a heart a muscle or is a heart a person? I think that obviously depends on who you talk to. But for me, I think if someone were like, hey, I have your mother's heart and someone's going to burn it and sacrifice it essentially, I think I'd be a bit concerned. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I agree. It seems like Rowan is trying to uh, compartmentalize the situation because think of anyone. If, If your family member's body was desecrated anyway, I'm sure anyone else would have this emotional reaction to that. We've been talking so much about ancestry in this episode, about about lineage. I can't help but wonder what Suzanne would make of Rowan if she could flash forward a few centuries and see her in the future. Mm, yeah, I wonder. Like we say, you know, witches, do they ever die? Can they come back? So who knows? Well, in Scottish folklore and mythology, the, there's the veil, so they're never truly gone. But now I'm hoping that Suzanne gets to someday taste an almond latte. I hope so, too. (laughs) I do, too. If she doesn't, I'm going to be so mad. If she doesn't get to use her Starbucks app, it's done for us. (laughs) Did almond milk exist back then? I mean, I I know they had cows and sheep, but they also had nuts, right? They would have had oat, right? So maybe they could have made oat milk. But did they? Right. We just got oat milk, everyone. We just got oat milk. (laughs) Well, let's take a step back and talk more broadly about the stories that we tell about witches. Dylan, what does being a witch mean to you? Like, how would you define what it means to be a real modern-day witch? Yeah. The definition of witchcraft is the manipulation of energy to suit your own needs. And I think that's exactly what witchcraft is. You are manipulating the energies of nature to benefit yourself. If you are manifesting, if you are putting out energy, if you are practicing magic to help you get through the day, that is really witchcraft in a nutshell. So today, as we're rethinking conceptions of gender, can anybody be a witch? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if you look at old witch trials, you know, a lot of men are accused of witchcraft. Oh, really? Yeah. I try to promote and say that if you are practicing witchcraft, if you are working with the spirits and energies, if you are doing the work and you feel strongly of that word, I would say go for it. It's almost like reclaiming this word. And and that's what witches are doing. They're reclaiming a word that is very taboo, that has a lot of these negative connotations, and they're utilizing it for itself, which goes back to what we were saying, too, is that witchcraft is political. To be a witch, you will always be on the fringe. I mean, I really love the way that this show merges the past and present in getting into all of that. I mean, it really comes to a head in this episode where we see Rowan in the modern era doing the transference spell to get rid of Lasher. But at the same time, we're cutting to Cyprian learning the origin of Lasher's powers way in the beginning, which is you, Hannah. It's it's Suzanne's fault. Mm-hmm. It's all my fault. And I, I take ownership of that. <laughs> This scene I find to be really powerful when we're intercutting between Scotland, between the transference spell, between this alt-right rally, 
Let's listen to a minute of it. Sister! Sister! Stay away! Stay away! Who will help you? Use the wicked words! Use the wicked words! Hannah, this is a huge scene. This scene to me is one of just the cruxes of this entire season. There's fear, desperation. You're saying something you didn't want to say, that you've been trying not to say. You're reaching out in a way that you didn't want to do. What was it like to film this moment? Oh, my gosh. It was, well, honestly exhausting. It was tough. And crazy industrial fans going on and the sides where the wind is picking up and there's, you know, insane fires and the building's burning. And he's asking, are you my witch. And I'm like, am I a witch? Is this what this is now? I guess so. What is that Jack Houston as Lasher eye contact like in person when he's giving you those eyes and walking towards you? Oh my God. Well, first of all, it feels it just like he has complete control over you. He's like sexy, but he's also like gripping you with these beautiful eyes and you're like, yeah, whatever you want me to do, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> he's also like in person, he's he's the most chill, charismatic, like supportive actor. So, I mean, while we're talking about Lasher, I think we need to talk about this. I mean, this is a story of female empowerment and yet here's Lasher at the center of it. And in the modern era, we have Harry Hamlin and his uncle Cortland kind of worming his way into the middle of things. This is a story of female power, but it's also a story about men in this world centering themselves in the middle of female power. Absolutely. But I also think it's a test in a sense because, I mean, yes, Lasher is male in terms of the way he's personified, but was that the intent when he was conjured, you know? And 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 I think he is an algamation of of many different forces and and I think he tests the the Mayfairs to kind of like control that energy. Yeah, because I don't think Suzanne ever had bad intentions. I think it was just like she had to use this dark power in order to survive. She was going to die. And I think in the book, she does get burned at the stake. But I think it's interesting they allowed Suzanne to live on. So, it, you know, show her power and strength and a need to to take control of her life and have some sort of power. Mm -hmm. And I will add to that too, where I, I do think this also goes to the idea of good and bad. Is Lasher evil? I mean, or is, is he good? Is he bad? She didn't use black magic or dark magic to summon this spirit. She utilized magic to bring something forth that she thought would help. And it's all about control. And I think that's something that is interesting to show these women. They all have different ideas of what that control looks like or what that energy looks like. I mean, even if you look at the first episode, you know, Deidre is in this kind of like Kamato state and you can say, oh, well, you know, the ants are evil or they're mean, but at the end of the day, are they or are they doing what they think is right to kind of 
keep peace or keep some sense of control. I like this view of the world, that there are no clear lines between good and evil, and that the relationship between Suzanne and Lasher isn't even as simple as one person controlling the other. Yeah. It, it reminds me that even in this dramatic moment of Lasher storming into the rescue scene, it felt really symbolic to me that Suzanne unlocks herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that was a, a choice on the day that was Lasher going to let me out or was Suzanne going to let herself out of that cage? And I think that it's a smart choice to give Suzanne that power, even though you do have the demon that is saving her, that is helping her. It's that she is now stepping into her power, which she's never had. And so she opens her own cage. She's able to step out. And now she's fully this woman who who can honestly like burn down villages and take people down. And this is exciting. Come, my beloved. My wedge. You're my wedge. You will have all that you desire. And in return, you are bound to fulfill an ancient prophecy. While I have two witch experts with me here, I want to ask you both about a few witch cliches and get your take on them. Are you ready? Yes. I'm ready. Okay. First one. Pointy hats. Ugh. They're certainly pointy, but I don't need it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't need it. Uh, The original aspect of that is quite anti-Semitic because a lot of Jewish people were associated with witchcraft and the pointy hat was meant to hide the horn. Because people thought that Jewish people had horns. Oh my God, you're kidding. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I'm anti-pointy hats now. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that this show is pro-bonnet instead. Very bonnet forward. <laughs> okay, let me ask you about another one. Apples. Totally. There's so much magic in apples. You know, if you slice it down the middle from the core, it makes a vulva. And then if you slice it down the other way, it makes a star. Things I didn't know. Things I'm definitely going to be doing with a knife immediately after we stop talking. Yeah, right. Do it. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't help but notice there was a scene in the show where Rowan is sitting at a table eating breakfast surrounded by tons of apples. And I was like, is that on purpose? (laughs) Hannah, were there apples on set? Like, did craft services slip in some classic witch food next to the Cheetos? There were apples galore. And they were doing it on purpose. They were just (laughs) doing it on purpose. (laughs) Okay. Cauldrons. That is 100% OG witch. Yep. Think of double, double toil and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. Yeah. That is, I mean, even from the earliest times, you have cauldrons. If you were to go to Greece right now, there's, I think it's it's close to 5,000 years old, bronze cauldron. So, I mean, cauldrons are pretty OG in magic and witchcraft. Okay, last one. This is something that I, as an animal lover, have noticed is Obviously absent from this set, black cats. Mm. Totally. During the European witch trials, when the Black Plague was happening in the UK, they blamed cats. They thought cats were the essences of witches. So guess what they did? They burned all the cats. But guess what that did? That left all the rats. (laughs) And and hence, more plague. Hannah, are you a cat person or a dog person? I am a dog person. Ah, but I. (laughs) I know, but I have a cat. 
And I love him. His name's Howie, but he's a rag doll, so he's very um, dog-like qualities. He's a cat dog. He's a cat dog. Okay, I'll allow it. Okay. (laughs) This has been so illuminating. I feel like I'm becoming a witch expert with you both. Thank you. My witch training is going quite well. But before you guys leave, I want to end with a little segment that we call Witch Fulfillment. Where we ask what choice you would make if you have supernatural powers. And because we've been talking about Mayfair women, their lineage, their different powers, we know that they have different gifts. We know that Rowan can manipulate people's blood vessels. We know that Tessa has the power of glamour that she can use to control men, that Josephine has premonitions. And I'm curious, which of those Mayfair woman powers would you pick? Oh, I know I certainly wouldn't choose premonitions. I I don't think that I would. (laughs) want to know what's going to happen that's kind of terrifying to me. I I think I like the power of glamour, and I don't necessarily mean in the sense of glamouring men, but I think it would be nice and it would make life a lot easier if I were able to kind of glamour everyone with my speech. Okay, wait, give me your Starbucks order again, but with glamour. Okay. (laughs) So could I have an almond milk latte with a shot of espresso? Thank you. Oh, Hannah, you can have anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would choose glamour too. I would just glamour people and be like, accept witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now it's your turn. In your best glamour voice, tell me to accept witchcraft. Accept witchcraft. Well, now I want to go tell poor Tessa, who's like, I only have the power of glamour. It kind of sucks. They were like, nah, man, glamour, 100%. That's what everybody's picking. You win. Yeah. Yeah, the polls are in, and glamour is the clear winner. 10 for 10, glamour. Uh, Well, Hannah, Dylan, this has been so much fun. Thank you for entering our coven. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that interview was fascinating. That kind of conversation is why I have been having so much fun doing this show with y'all. I just feel like I learn so much every single time. I also have to say, Starbucks challenge. Man, will I ever have the nerve to go in there and order my order? It's just a nice Americano, a little bit of milk. I'm very simple, but could I do that with a fun accent? I'd like an iced Americano. I'd like an iced Americano. I'd like an iced Americano. Okay, absolutely not. This is why I'm not an actor. Before we go, I want to add a little extra magic to our cauldron. It's henbane, also known as stinking nightshade, and it looks like a pale yellow flower with a purple throat, and it smells like rotting human flesh. Henbane is a psychotropic, as in hallucinations, and some people say that just smelling it is enough to make you dizzy. It'll be clear why we are adding henbane to our cauldron in a second, but fair warning, this is about to get a little R-rated. In this episode, we learn a lot about different witchy symbols. The transference circle, the fire, the creepy little bone doll. So I wanted to tell you about another classic witch object. The broomstick. A.K.A. the vehicle that witches used to fly across the night sky. A.K.A. the witch's car. But why are witches said to fly on a broomstick, of all things? Something ordinary, something practical that you probably have in your home, instead of, like, a giant dragon cat. Well, there is a story behind the broomstick. Flying probably wasn't literal. 
it meant getting really, really high. There's a recipe all the way back from 1276 for a quote-unquote flying ointment made of henbane, mandrake, hemlock, lettuce, opium, ivy, lapithum, unripe mulberry juice, and spurge flax. I have to say, the ingredient I would most not want to eat is spurge flax. No offense, spurge flax. So, how do brooms fit in? Well, people didn't drink this flying ointment. They rubbed it on one of their mucous membranes, like the vulva. And what is one thing in most people's houses? The broomstick. So the idea was, healers would smear this flying ointment on broomsticks, and then ride the broom, just as you would any sex toy. So yes, you could say that broomsticks are just big hallucinogenic dildos. So when the Wicked Witch of the West swoops through the air on a broomstick, screaming, Surrender, Dorothy! Maybe she just means surrender to pleasure. Hi, Amy. My name is Rhonda. I'm not a witch, but I'm sure enjoying the Mayfair Witches show and your podcast. I love your interview style, and I love the backstory behind the show and just learning about New Orleans history. Your interview with Harry Hamlin was awesome, and I learned more about snakes than I ever wanted to know. Keep up the good work. I'll be listening. Bye. Oh, Rhonda, that was so sweet. Thank you. Honestly, I have to say, if Harry Hamlin wanted to start his own podcast about snake facts, I think there are more snake facts I would want to know. I want to talk to Harry Hamlin about snakes forever. Season two of the Mayfair Witches podcast, Snake Facts. After talking with Dylan, I think we are well on our way to becoming full-fledged witches. But our education is not yet complete. Please call in with your thoughts, questions, reactions about all things Mayfair Witches. You can leave a voicemail at 888 888- 994-WTCH. That's 888-994-9824. Your message might even be included right here in future episodes of the podcast. Join us next week for episode seven of Mayfair Witches. Its title is Tessa, and our guest is Madison Wolf, who plays Tessa, and Michelle Ashford, the co-creator of the entire series. I'm very excited to talk to both of them about what is sure to be a really, really wild episode. Make sure to watch Mayfair Witches every Sunday night on AMC or stream it early on AMC+. For an extended 30-day free trial of AMC+, go to amcplus.com and use promo code MayfairPod. That's Mayfair P-O-D. Podcast episodes drop on Sunday nights after the show, so subscribe wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to the AMC Mayfair Witches podcast. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our producer is Ben Goldberg. Ari Saperstein is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. I am Amy Nicholson. Thank you again to Hannah Aline and Dylan Bauer for joining us. 